Our scripture lesson this morning is from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but have not love, I am as a noisy gong or a clashing cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will cease. As for tongues, they will come to an end. As for knowledge, it too will end. For now we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I thought as a child. I spoke like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put away childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now we know only in part. Then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. And now three things abide, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As for prophecies, they will come to an end, writes St. Paul in what might be, after the 23rd Psalm, the most famous passage in all of Western literature. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for knowledge, it will cease. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know only in part. Then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. And so three things, abide, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, when our modest lives complete their little shuffle upon this mortal coil after Three score years and ten, or by reason of strength, four score years. Three things will remain. When life, that poor player that struts and frets its hour upon the stage, is heard no more, three things will remain. When a dying star throws its furnaces beyond the orbit of the third rock from the sun and swallows it up, three things will remain. When there is nothing left of this physical universe but silence, darkness, and absolute zero, three things will remain. Now, Paul doesn't explain why he thinks faith, hope, and love are the three eternal verities. Maybe he's just waxing poetic, right? Perhaps he's just giving his fluent quill a chance to sing. Maybe it's just poetry, some lily-gilding oratory to get his rollicking, hedonistic, cantankerous Corinthian church to concentrate less on their preposterous luxuries and their trivial quarrels and to notice what really matters. Perhaps it's just poetry. St. Paul doesn't pause to explain it himself, but the great 20th century American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr takes a nice crack at it. He was born in St. Louis, served churches in Detroit, ended up in New York City. Reinhold Niebuhr says, nothing worth doing is completed in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. 
Nothing true or beautiful makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be done alone. Therefore, we must be saved by love. Life is long, says Dr. Niebuhr, longer than the span of our breathing existence. Therefore, we're saved by hope. Life is mysterious and eludes the grasp of our finite intelligence. Therefore, we're saved by faith. Life is hard, harder than we can bear on our own. Therefore, we're saved by love. And so you know how Martin Luther King loved the beat and rhythm and music and melody of words, right? He rocked our world because the beat and melody of his language rolled like music in our ears. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, we can't get that tune out of our heads. Faith, hope, and love, said Dr. King once, are a magnificent trilogy of durability. I love that phrase. He's paraphrasing St. Paul and recalling Reinhold Niebuhr, whose every word he would have read and reread while he was working on his doctoral dissertation. Magnificent trilogy of durability. He loved sesquipedalian Latinisms as much as monosyllabic Anglo-Saxonisms. And he used rhythm and rhyme to plant his thoughts deep into our hearts, in our head. Magnificent trilogy of durability, he said. And faith is one-third of this trilogy. We're saved by faith because nothing true or beautiful ever makes sense in any immediate context of history. We're saved not by our own achievements, because we're not masters of our own destiny. Life throws surprises at us, twists and turns, knuckleballs, flea flickers, the old double pump fake beneath the basket. And we have to give ourselves up to life's uncertainties. John Ortberg is a Presbyterian preacher who serves a church on the West Coast just now, but he was born in Rockford, Illinois, educated at Wheaton College. And for a while, a long time ago, he was on the staff at the Willow Creek Church. And he tells a story from when his daughters were very young. He remembers them to be about five and three years old. And his family was <clears throat> staying at a hotel with a swimming pool. And his wife was in the hotel room tending to their infant son. So John goes down to the pool with the five-year-old and the three-year-old. And he's playing in the water with the five-year-old. And the three-year-old is supposed to be sitting on the pool deck observing all of this when she either fell or jumped into the water and she disappears below the surface. It took John about a second and a half to grab her and lift her back above the surface of the water, but she is screaming bloody murder. She's choking and sputtering. She says, Daddy, Daddy, I drowned I drowned And John says, No, honey, you didn't drown. That's not drowning. You just went under for a second. I've been watching you the whole time. You were safe the whole time. And let's not tell Mommy about this, shall we? <laughs> And John says, because I knew what she didn't know, that she was never at risk. There was somebody watching her the whole time. And John says, that's the way our faith in God is. Even though real bad things may happen to us, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. That's our faith. From an ultimate perspective, God's world is perfectly safe for us. So we're saved by faith. 
Life is a mystery, says that renowned theologian Madonna. Life is a mystery, so that it's manifold layers, it's unexpected twists and turns, it's multi-hued, polyglot iridescence, it's overflowing prodigality will always elude the short reach of our modest intelligence. So we have to adhere firmly to truths we will never prove and throw our ultimate commitment into principles we're never entirely sure will serve our purposes and forge laws that might have no meaning beyond what we grant them in our own little worlds. Every January about this time, I revisit Taylor Branch's magisterial trilogy called America in the King Years. And the other day I was rooting around in the third volume called At Canaan's Edge, reading about the year 1966, when Dr. King's unflagging commitment to nonviolent resistance was being attacked on every side, even by allies. People were giving up on nonviolence and retreating to more belligerent approaches like that of uh, Malcolm X, who was already dead from violence, and Stokely Carmichael and Adam Clayton Powell, even James Meredith, the thoughtful young black man who was the first to integrate the University of Mississippi, was giving up on Dr. King. He said it was impractical. Dr. King is just a preacher, he said. He's never served in the military. His philosophy can never work in this violent land. James Meredith. But then, long lines of black people began marching clear across Mississippi, and with every mile, the line gets longer, and it passes through towns where black people can't register to vote, and where the libraries and the schoolhouses have been segregated for 300 years, ever since the first slave arrived. And people standing by, watching the praise, suddenly find themselves marching. I was just looking, said one, when all of a sudden I was marching. Aristocratic white matriarchs, shocked to see their nannies and maids marching, pointed in stares. Yes, it's me, said one black maid. I raised your babies and now I'm marching for my rights. Robert Greene, a Michigan State University professor on loan to the movement, departed from his text of a prepared speech and took an American flag and planted it on a monument to Jefferson Davis. He said, we're tired of these Confederate flags. Give me the American flag. That's the flag of freedom. It took 50 years for those statues to come down, but eventually they did, and now most of them are in museum basements where they belong. In March of 1966, Kentucky defeats Duke in the NCAA men's basketball semifinals. And everybody in America thinks that Duke was the only thing standing in the way of another Kentucky championship. Adolf Rupp, Baron of the Bluegrass. But then this unheard of team from El Paso, Texas Western University, manages to get to the finals from the other side of the bracket. And so there's this white guy who coaches Texas Western. Nobody's ever heard of him going against Kentucky coach Adolph Rupp, Baron of the Bluegrass. And even, his name was Don Haskins, even Don Haskins' president at West, Texas Western begged him never to start more than three black men 
at the tip-off of a basketball game. Just common courtesy and etiquette demanded. You never start five black guys. And if you watch old newsreels of the NCAA Finals against Kentucky in 1966, you can hear an audible hush fall across the arena when five black men go out to center court for the opening tip-off. I was just playing my best five guys, said Coach Haskins. Texas Western defeats Kentucky 72-65 for the national championship. When Coach Haskins retired from Texas Western, it's University of Texas, El Paso now, when Coach Haskins retires in 1999 after 37 years, he's earned 719 NCAA victories. He's in the Hall of Fame. When Adolph Rupp retired in 1972 after 41 years, he's in the Hall of Fame too, he had 876 wins, more than any coach in the history of the game. In 41 years, one black athlete played for Adolph Rupp. But then another southern white coach comes along, right? Dean Smith, University of North Carolina. He marched against segregation. On Dean Smith's teams, nobody was more important than anybody else. And he always listed his players in alphabetical order so that a player with a name like, for instance, Jordan Michael will end up just ahead of the middle of the pack. When Dean Smith retires, he has 879 wins. He's in the Hall of Fame, too. Nothing makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. But things change. We're saved by faith. And do you see how America itself was saved by Dr. King's unflagging faith, his faith in angry young black men who'd never had any opportunity, his faith in the way of Jesus, his faith in the, in the approach of nonviolence, most spectacularly of all, his faith in the common decency of white Americans, despite all appearances to the contrary. And I think you can see how faith is one-third of that magnificent trilogy of durability and that it will never grow old and it will never die away, not ever, not even when there is no nothing left behind but darkness and silence and absolute zero. And we've all gone home to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.